friends. Welcome to Muscle Maven Radio. I'm your host, Ashley Van Houten. Thank you so much for joining me as always. Today's guest uh, and today's topic is something that's a little bit different maybe than usual in that um, it's a topic and a, I guess, health hack, you could say, that I really wasn't super interested in. And uh, it wasn't so much that I had to be convinced to do it as just I felt like it wasn't really for me. It wasn't something that I needed to do. Um, But I kind of got one over after learning a little bit more and realizing that this could help other people, first of all, and that it could also help me. I could learn something about my health and my body and how it reacts to different foods. So what I'm talking about is the continuous glucose monitor. You've seen a lot of people using these. Traditionally, they were used for um, people with diabetes or insulin sensitivity, uh, people who had to really, really closely monitor their blood glucose. More frequently now, it's being used for people who are maybe eating a strict ketogenic diet, people who are trying to track these things for health optimization rather maybe than to address specific disease. Um, Now, since I neither have diabetes nor am a a keto person per se, I really didn't feel like it was something that I I needed to to play with or experiment with. I thought, you know, I eat carbs. I don't really want to track what that's doing to me and then freak myself out unnecessarily. I'm metabolically healthy. Um, I tend to eat the foods that I believe I tolerate well. Um, I'm not chasing blood ketones. I'm not, I'm not really particularly interested in any of this stuff. So what do I need to do it for? Was kind of my attitude for the longest time. And then the good folks at NutriSense reached out to me and they said, well, you know, what's the harm in, in trying? And that really kind of got me because that is something I kind of talk about all the time when it comes to trying new ways of eating, trying new uh, workouts, reading new books, whatever it is. It's always a good idea to try new things, you know, because the risk reward ratio just makes sense. You know, you can learn things, you can improve your life, you can improve your health, you can have fun. Um, and there's really no kind of downside to trying these things in a lot of cases. Um, certainly, what I talk about with my book, It Takes Guts, I'm trying to convince people to eat organ meats um, because it's healthy and it's good for you and it's good for the planet. And what's the harm? You know, you try something, you don't like it, you move on, you try something and you do like it, and now you're eating nose to tail and you're feeling really good and your health is improved. So that was all the argument it took really to win me over to try a continuous glucose monitor. And I did for two weeks. I did a couple little experiments. Mostly, I really just kind of paid attention to what my blood sugar was doing living my normal life. So I did the workouts that I normally do. I ate the food that I normally eat. Um, I really didn't mess around too much with a lot of different experiments. But with that said, there were some things going on during those couple of weeks that that may have changed my results and kind of gave me some interesting things to look at. And I thought it would be cool to have Kara Collier, she is the director of nutrition for NutriSense, come on, interpret some of the results with me, talk to me a little bit about what I was seeing, what my body was doing, um, and what that meant, what that meant for possibly me changing some things in my lifestyle or not, um, or just kind of being more informed with with what's really happening with my body and how it's reacting to things. So I thought it was really useful. We also answer some questions that I crowdsourced from you guys. So I posted on social media and said, hey, if you have any questions about a CGM, let me know and I'll ask the expert. So we get into all of it. Kara is fantastic at breaking these things down in a really, really clear and straightforward way. Um, so I hope you get something from it. I hope you learn something. Um, and maybe just, if, if nothing else, you take the lesson that I took, which is that you don't have to be uh, somebody who's obsessively over the top tracking your health to experiment with these things. You can absolutely do this in a healthy, natural, fun, exploratory way. You don't need to um, have a chronic disease to benefit from a CGM, but you also don't need to use one of these. I don't need it. I'm not telling all of you to go out and get one. I'm just saying that this is kind of another interesting tool you can use if you feel like it. And if you do feel like it, uh, I have a discount for you. If you want to use this particular company's CGM and related app, I found it very easy to use and simple. So um, I recommend it if you're if you're going to go that route. Um, And I'll put all that information in the show notes that you can uh, get a discount and try out their product. Um, And that's it. 
I hope you enjoy it. This is my interview with Kara Collier. All right, Kara, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ashley. All right. So I've got lots of questions for you. Um, when, when I was going through this experiment, I was sending you lots of questions and you were giving me some very, very detailed and helpful answers. So I wanted to kind of just pass this along to my listeners, because this is something that I think a lot of people are curious about and maybe similar to me. Um, they were thinking maybe it's not for me or maybe I don't need it. Um, but they're still curious because a lot of us in the health and wellness industry are just curious people and want answers to everything. And that's why you're here. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) so we're talking about continuous glucose monitors. We're talking about what they are, how they can help us, um, what they can tell us. And I'd love to start from like a very, very general place because I really didn't know a whole lot about this either. Um, so I'd love for you to just kind of explain exactly what a continuous glucose monitor is, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. So a continuous glucose monitor is a small device, um, about a quarter size, and it goes on the back of your arm in the tricep area. And you put this on at home. You don't need to see a doctor or anything, but traditionally it is a medical device. So in the United States, it does require a prescription and it's most traditionally used for type one or insulin dependent diabetics. Um, So we can get into why we think everybody should be wearing this, but we strongly believe at NutraSense that everybody should know what's happening inside their body and understand their glucose values. And so we're taking care of all the prescription and backend stuff so everyone can have access to these devices but they, you put them on at home. It's super painless, really easy to insert. I don't know what your experience was like, but I always describe it as like an easy button because it's in this applicator and you just push the button and it's in the back of your arm and it's super easy, super painless. And then the device stays on for 14 days straight. So two weeks, you can work out with it, shower with it, do all your normal activities. And then at any time you're curious about your glucose values, you just scan your phone against the CGM and you can see what's happening in your glucose 24 seven. So that is why this device is so insightful and unique is that there's nothing else that's measuring 24 seven what's going on. So you get this very unique lens of your metabolic health and what's going on and the inside. So you can see what's happening while you're sleeping. You can see the exact shape of your glucose curve after a meal and not just, you know, what happened two hours later. So you get all these insights with a continuous glucose monitor that you really can't capture it with any other device or metric. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to talk about my experience with it and maybe discuss some of the things that was, that were coming up for me and some questions that I had, because if they're applicable to me, they're probably applicable to some other people listening as well. And then I'm going to ask you some questions that I kind of got from listeners. Um, and we can speak about it more generally. Um, but it's funny because when you guys kind of reached out to me, this was one of those things I like to think that I'm, I'm somebody who likes to always learn new things and kind of take in new information and not necessarily like biohack for the sake of it. But I'm, I'm, I like to experiment and I like to do these things that I can share this stuff on this platform. Um, but the CGM was something that I just was like, never really that interested in. And there were a couple of reasons. And some of these are misconceptions really, because one of them was like, I'm not a keto person. I'm not, I'm not trying to never eat carbs or never have a, a, glucose spike. So like, what's the point of me even kind of monitoring this? And also the idea that I thought, you know, for the most part, I'm pretty sorted out. Like I know the foods that I enjoy and that I think I tolerate well. And then the foods that I just know are going to make me feel antsy and weird. So I'm like, what, you know, what is the point of really tracking these things? And then I thought like, that's not really the approach that, that an open-minded researcher should have, like go give it a shot and see, and you probably will learn some things that you did not know about yourself. And I think that was certainly true. Um, but right off the bat, I was asking you questions like why, like I thought my numbers were a little bit higher than I expected. And I think part of that was because I was maybe comparing them to someone who was in ketosis or did follow a keto diet. So can you tell me or tell the listeners, um, if there are some general ranges and numbers that a healthy person should be looking for um, and maybe differentiate that between someone who's eating a ketogenic diet and someone who is not. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when we're looking at the CGM data, a common misconception is that we want glucose completely flat and we want as low as possible. And there is a point of diminishing returns, right? So like a fasting glucose value of 90 versus 70, there's not a whole lot of added value between that. So that is something to take into consideration. You know, when some people they're like, I spiked to 110 and it's like, well, that's, that's okay. That's totally normal. And within physiological ranges. So we're looking at three different metrics with the CGM. First is that fasting glucose value. So this is when you're without food technically for at least eight hours. So usually kind of checking the overnight values into the morning time is a good range for that. And we are looking for that fasting glucose value between 70 and 90. Um, that's just like the, the optimal range, probably if you're doing keto or non-keto, but if you're never consuming carbohydrates, it's going to be probably on that lower end of 70 to 80, but that doesn't mean that if it's in the nineties or high eighties, it's inherently bad. Um, so that's, that's the first metric we're looking, we're looking at. And as I think you notice, and a lot of people notice really quickly is this is a changing metric. You know, traditionally we go to the doctor maybe once a year, we get a fasting glucose value on a lab panel. So it's this snapshot in time. And it looks like it's something that really doesn't change much, but it does. It's quite variable and it's especially influenced by cortisol and any type of stress. So that number is helpful to see over, you know, a two week period, if you're just doing one CGM, because you could have a fasting glucose value that's 20 point higher than a different day if, if you're under a lot of stress or you didn't sleep well. Um, so there's a lot to take into account there that we can dive into. But then the second metric is how high does your glucose values go at any point in time? So this is sort of your max glucose. And this is usually in response to a meal um, in the postprandial state. And for most of the time we want that glucose value below 140 uh, milligrams. So in American metric terms, um, but 140 is sort of that upper threshold. And with that being said, if you spike at, you know, 140, 150, 160, every once in a while, it's not a big deal. You know, we have systems in place in our body to take care of, you know, nuances like that. If you have a bunch of sweets on your birthday or Christmas or something, it's not a big deal. Um, it's this repeated damage. If we're hitting 150 levels every single morning because of our standard breakfast that we're choosing, we're doing that every day, day in and day out. That's when we start to see trouble. And if you're, Sorry. I was going to say, why is that troublesome? So if we are somebody who is trying to just be healthy, we're not trying to be super, super low carb for any particular reason. And unbeknownst to us, because we're not tracking one of our meals every day is spiking us to 150, 160. We just, just cause we're eating oatmeal in the morning and maybe that's what it does to us. And if that's happening every day, what effect is that going to have over time? Yeah. So it has sort of a cascading effect um, where you kind of get in this cycle of damage and it, it really starts first at the mitochondria because these are of course the organelles in our cells that have to deal with the glucose load coming in. You know, that's where it goes from glucose into usable energy ATP. And so when we have a large glucose load coming in at one time really fast, this can overwhelm the cells and the mitochondrial capabilities and cause it to kind of work over time in order to process that energy. And a byproduct of that is free radicals, some oxidative damage, a little bit of inflammation. And again, if this happens just every once in a while, your body can clean up that damage fairly quickly. But when we get into a cycle where, you know, the damage and the cleanup is outpacing each other, then we're starting to have an accumulative effect of oxidative damage and inflammation. And then that starts a cycle of leading us more towards something like impaired glucose tolerance and insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. And then additionally, each spike is damaging to the blood vessels. So the glucose is in your bloodstream and, you know, these vessels are a very thin layer of cells and they're susceptible to damage. And at certain levels, glucose in the bloodstream is toxic. And so 
a big glucose spike does a little bit of damage to that microvascular system and it causes, you know, different inflammatory markers to come in and clean up the damage. But again, if, if we're having that repeated abuse over and over, it starts to catch up to us. And that's, that's really like in a healthy insulin sensitive person, what's going on. And then if we have that, you know, over and over, we, we start to get into dangerous zone of potential insulin resistance. Okay. Another factor that came into play with my personal experience and, uh, you know, TMI to the men who are listening, who get all worked up over this, but I started my period on the exact same day that I put this glucose monitor on. And it was something that I hadn't really considered, but as we know, our, our cycle, our monthly cycle does a lot of things hormonally and the way we have cravings, the way we react to different foods, our stress level, all of these things. So it turns out that the timing that I put this thing on kind of had an effect um, with, you know, the results that I was getting. So can you speak to that a little bit in terms of what kind of uh, things you might be seeing that are different depending on the different times of the month? Yeah, absolutely. So every woman seems to experience this a little bit differently, which is again, you know, we're all unique and we have personalized responses, but on average, we tend to see higher glucose values during that luteal phase, which is the second half of your cycle weeks, three and four between ovulation and menstruation. Um, and so during this time, we're having hormonal changes where estrogen is lowering, progesterone peaks, and that just inherently makes us less insulin sensitive, which raises glucose values, unfortunately. So almost all women experience this. It's just to what degree did different women experience it? And when exactly does it occur? Like for me, it's that whole first week before my period, my average glucose is 10 to 20 points higher. And that's just, you know, the way it is. And so I compensate by, you know, adjusting my diet a little bit, a little bit lower carb during that time period. Um, you know, being a little bit more careful about things like cravings and when I'm having treats. And for some women, it's shifted a little bit towards like that first couple days of their period, um, which might've been, you know, what you were experiencing, but anytime we have major hormonal changes, we're going to experience um, an effect on our glucose values because they're very sensitive to effects of hormones like insulin and cortisol, but then also things like estrogen. And that's also, and unfortunately why men tend to have better glycemic control and tend to be a little bit more carbohydrate sensitive. Um, there's quite a few factors at play here, but one is that they have lower levels of estrogen and higher levels of testosterone and testosterone inherently makes us a little bit more insulin sensitive and better able to dispose of that glucose coming in. So there, there are gender differences in, in multiple ways. They just <laughs> but, get the easy end every time, don't they? It's like we it's have a lot of couples who do the program together, um, like husband and wife and, you know, over and over wives are like, we're eating the same exact thing. And mine's a smaller portion, you know, I'm matching it to my size and it's still, you know, I have a much higher spike than my husband does. And, and that's unfortunately just a common so theme. Unfair. <laughs> it is in your experience. Do you find these, um, responses to like the different hormonal kind of periods in our, in our cycle, do you find those, um, differ for women who are like strict keto versus not strict keto or are, are the differences still there? Maybe just not as pronounced. I'm seeing it across the board. Um, so during that time when we're a little bit less insulin sensitive and we're putting out a little bit more glucose from the liver, um, you're seeing higher average glucose values, but then also maybe an exaggerated response to a meal you normally respond well to. So for somebody who's maybe, you know, keto, very low carbohydrate, they're seeing higher average values. And then maybe, you know, the postprandial is, is not that much higher because they're not necessarily eating anything that's raising their glucose values that much, but that average increase is definitely still there. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm going to ask some questions about like responses to food and timing and exercise and things like that. But one of the things that I also found during my two week experiment that I thought was really interesting, and I'd love for you to kind of get into the nerdy science on this is I experimented a little bit with, um, with, temperature, like sort of heat and cold therapy and how that would uh, make my blood glucose respond. And 
I didn't know what I was expecting because I don't know anything about this, but I the the results that I got were were interesting. So I experimented with I have an at home infrared sauna. Um, and so I experimented with getting in that thing for about 45 minutes and seeing what it would do. And this was happening sort of at the end of the day. Um, and then kind of unbeknownst to me, I experimented with cold therapy by like going for a walk in Canada where it's cold. <laughs> and what I experienced is that the heat exposure, the sort of, uh, being in the hot place for a period of time raised my blood glucose. Whereas being doing something cold, do, moving around and, and um, exposure to cold dropped it over and over again. This wasn't and this wasn't like a one time thing. This happened a couple times. So I would have thought that any kind of sort of um, temperature manipulation in the extreme would almost do the same thing because it's a similar stress just on different ends of the spectrum. But they seem to do the opposite thing. So first of all, is that normal or am I the weird one? And also what is happening there? Yeah, that's very normal. So that's the pattern we tend to see with everyone is, is a glucose increase in the moment of heat therapy and then a glucose drop during cold therapy. So with cold therapy, you know, we see this with, yeah, if you're in really cold outdoor temperatures, that's enough to see that effect. But also, you know, if you're doing a cold shower, ice bath, or even, you know, to the more extreme end of cryotherapy. Yeah. And this has been shown to lower both glucose values and insulin values, which of course will lead to a drop on your CGM data. Um, and there's multiple mechanisms that are speculated for what's, what's going on here. One that I find particularly interesting that we discussed was in activation of brown fat. So as people are probably aware, you know, we have two different types of fat in our body. We have white fat, which is the most common. And then we have brown fat, which isn't as common isn't as common and it's, it's mostly found in babies, um, to keep them warm. And so the white fat that we're used to lacks mitochondria, but that brown fat is loaded with mitochondria. So it's able to burn nutrients. Like we were talking about earlier, the mitochondria doing. And so when the temperature drops, it activates brown fat, and then it to warm up the body and increase our body temperature. And during this glucose is getting consumed really quickly and insulin levels lower. So basically the body is using up the glucose in order to warm itself back up. And so it's like doing, you know, a workout or revving up your metabolic engine just by being cold, which is, is very interesting. And that effect is seen across the board. Um, and it tends to be, you know, you see that glucose drop in the moment, not necessarily then it's lower for the rest of the day, but you're certainly burning up glucose to fuel that heat therapy or to bring the temperature back up. So I should then be mostly brown fat because I'm always cold. <laughs> like I am literally always, I mean, that's a whole other thing that I think is common among a lot of women, but would this be, would cold therapy or working out in cooler temperatures be a tool that people would want to use if they are trying to, um, I don't know, get into ketosis, if they're trying to burn fat, if they're trying to um, create more brown fat, which is a healthier fat to have, is that something that would be like recommended for people to kind of add into their repertoire? Yeah, and there is some evidence that the more you're activating it, the more brown fat you're going to have because the body is thinking, well, you're cold often and we need to have these mechanisms in place in order to be able to bring up your temperature easily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's evidence of people who live in cold regions, they just have more brown fat available, where somebody who lives in maybe a tropical region doesn't have very much because it's a supply and demand type of thing. Mm -hmm. So while it's maybe still in like hypothetical stages of if you'd want that into your routine to build that up. I'd say it has enough like merit behind it that it, it certainly wouldn't hurt. And I think it's plausible that you could increase your brown fat and then you would be increasing your metabolic rate at baseline. Um, similar to like, if you're putting on more muscle mass or you're working out more, you're increasing your metabolic rate and cold therapy and, and brown fat percentage, I think would do the same thing. Okay. So that brings up another question too. Um, how does gaining muscle or having more muscle affect your insulin sensitivity or resistance. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah. So like you, I'm a huge proponent of doing strength training, especially in women who are already, you know, we're in an unfortunate position where we're already less carbohydrate sensitive and we need to gear up on those tools that we have at our, you know, availability in order to improve that. And probably the best thing you can do is strength training. So of course, you know, any type of exercise is helpful, but I am particularly biased towards strength training because it has unique ability to increase our insulin sensitivity, which is of course going to lower our glucose values. Um, it also stimulates what are called GLUT4, which are these, um, glucose transporters. So it's helping to bring glucose into the muscles without having to use insulin. And then also we're able to store glucose and as glycogen in two areas, um, our liver and our skeletal muscle. So we only have so much room in our liver. We don't want to make it bigger than it already is. And so we can increase the size of our skeletal muscle, which increases our capacity to store glucose. So if those glycogen stores are full, um, whether, you know, you don't have very much muscle mass available or you're not ever burning through it, then, you know, we're going to instead accumulate fat as, you know, our energy backup. So being able to build up that glycogen reservoir and also burning through it by doing exercise is extremely helpful in lowering glucose values and also just improving metabolic health as a whole. Okay. I love that. I love every time someone comes on this show and says women should be lifting weights. So it's not just me saying it, it's like other smart people. So (laughs) listen to them. Um, but I also love that sort of practical advice that having more muscle is, um, it lets you get away with more. Let's be honest. Like it also makes you healthier. It keeps you from injury. It's all those good things, makes you look good, but it also kind of gives you a little bit more leeway with your diet and all kinds of things. Because like you said, it's kind of providing more capacity. Um, and I noticed too, that some of the like sort of high carb experiments that I was doing, I would do. So let's use the example that you probably saw a couple times, which was plantain chips, which are delicious. Okay. And I'm never going to stop eating them, but I noticed that these, and of course there's probably a little bit of like a portion thing happening too. But when I was eating plantain chips that rocketed up my, my blood glucose pretty, pretty high. Um, and so what I did another time, cause I still had some plantain chips to eat was I ate them and then I went and had a good workout. And I noticed that the, the glucose spike was much smaller when I did that. So walk us through the mechanism there. So it's basically just, if I'm eating a ton of carbs and I'm sitting around that, that blood glucose kind of has nowhere to go. Right. Whereas if I'm, if I'm kind of fortifying myself with this, this, a lot of glucose, and then I go and do something with it, it's being used rather than it, rather than just kind of sitting around. And is that going to then, um, sort of mitigate some of that, like micro damage that you were talking about earlier, that's happening. Exactly. Yeah. So there's multiple things going on at once here and they're all positive. So you're, you know, when you're working out, you're clearing out some of that glycogen because you're using the glucose for your exercise. So you have more room for extra glucose to go to, but you're also increasing your sensitivity to insulin. So then when you eat something like carbohydrates after a meal, the body's able to pick that up really quickly and use it for energy rather than create that big spike and then have to go into storage mode. Um, and so there's multiple mechanisms at place here and it's one of the best hacks, you know, there, and I'm a huge proponent of, we still need to enjoy food and have a life and there's foods I'm not willing to give up either. So I love oatmeal. Like, you know, if some people are like, you shouldn't be eating oatmeal. And I'm like, I like oatmeal and (laughs) it's one of my go-to breakfasts. You know, I eat my scrambled eggs first because protein before your carbohydrates is also an easy hack you can do that lower that glucose value from the carbohydrates by getting some protein first. And then I have the oatmeal, but I usually eat this, um, after a fasted workout in the morning. And so if I don't get my workout in for whatever reason, you know, my schedule's busy instead, I'm just going to do, you know, eggs and avocado and some non-starchy vegetables. So, you know, that oatmeal is contingent upon the fact that I get my exercise in, in the morning. And so these are easy hacks. You know, if you have something you like, and you know, it gives a normally, you know, a higher glucose spike, 
work out beforehand or go on a walk even can help mitigate it. Going on a walk afterwards, any type of movement, but especially that strength training. So we've talked on the podcast before a lot about the benefits of fasted training for different people, different types of training. Um, but have you found in your experience and, and, and doing the work that you do, so you get to see a lot of different people's, um, values and their responses. Do you find a difference between, um, eating carbs right before a workout versus right after. So it's kind of the concept of either fueling before you go do the work or replacing that glycogen after you, you use it up. Like, is there kind of a, is there a difference there? Is there something that people should be aiming for one or the other, or is it just kind of like up to what works for you personally? Yeah, I think it depends on your ultimate goals. Um, if your goal is really, you know, getting to that extreme level of performance, like athletic performance, you know, maybe you're doing really high intensity exercise or you're trying to, you know, hit a PR or heavy strength training, you might want a little fuel beforehand. Um, anything high intensity, it's going to be more glycolytic in nature. So you're using glucose to fuel that workout. So if you give a little bit of easy to digest glucose beforehand, you're going to have probably better performance. But for most people that I'm working with, you know, the goal is weight loss or the goal is improving metabolic flexibility, metabolic health. And from that standpoint, I'm more of a proponent of that fasted exercise because you're then relying on the energy you have already available to fuel that workout. And then afterwards, when you do refuel, you're going to have that improved glucose response to the meal afterwards. Um, so I, I think it depends a little bit, you know, I do think if you're doing a fasted workout and it's really high intensity and you're really going for specific goals, it might not be your best option. You might want to do a little bit of fueling beforehand. Okay. Now let's talk a bit about the, uh, hack you just gave us where if you're going to have some carbs and you kind of want to mute that response a little bit, protein first is a good idea. And that's something I kind of talk about a lot to people, not even from the, the blood glucose perspective, but from the, um, uh, muscle building, muscle maintenance perspective of just eat your protein first because it's the most important, I believe. Um, but why does eating protein first help that glucose response? And then the secondary part to that question is, does it also work if you combine these carbs with like a good fat source or does that do something different? Yeah. So in general, it helps blunt that glucose response because if we're eating carbohydrates by themselves, especially on a, you know, semi-empty stomach. So maybe first meal of the day, this is especially prompt, uh, like pronounced, I guess, is this effect of carbs on an empty stomach. You have nothing to slow down that digestion. So you see this quick glucose spike right away. Whereas something like a little bit of protein beforehand, and it doesn't have to be, you know, like you wait a long time in between, you can just eat the protein, then immediately eat the carbs and that glucose response is blunted. So on average, we have lots of our, you know, clients trying this and I've tested it with all types of carbohydrates and all types of protein. And on average, we see that maximum glucose value lower by about 20 points. If you have that protein first, wow. which is pretty significant for something super easy. Um, so if you have, you know, separated food, if it's not already a mixed meal or you can't really eat it separately, always eat that protein first. And I agree that for other reasons, that's also important because it's also satiating Well, probably less likely to overeat if we eat that protein first. And it's really important macronutrient for multiple other reasons. Um, and there is some evidence that if you do the fat first and then the carbohydrate, that this can be also helpful for blunting that glucose response, but I just haven't seen it work as well with clients. Um, so in, in the evidence, they say protein or fats can help blunt that response. But when people seem to eat the fat and no protein, it doesn't always work. Um, I've just noticed that sometimes it has an effect and sometimes it doesn't improve it at, at all. Whereas protein always does. So I'm just saying go with the protein. And I, I think that might be because fat is just slower to digest. Um, it moves through the system slower. So maybe you would need more time in between the fat first and then the carbohydrate, as opposed to eating it, you know, right back to back, but that's just my hypothesis. I'm not, I'm not sure. I just haven't seen it work as well. 
Hey, everybody, interrupting my own damn podcast here to tell you about today's show sponsor because they're important. And before you skip through this, I got to tell you, this is one of the biggest discounts that basically any company ever offers for things like this. It's 20% off. So maybe you want to listen to this one. I'll keep it brief. You guys know already, Bubs Naturals is my only source for collagen and MCT powder, which I am using consistently every day in my coffee, in my baking, in my protein oatmeal, in my bone broth, whatever I'm eating basically is going to have one or both of these products in it. Um, You know, what else do you need? Collagen, coffee, chocolate, organ meats. That's it. Uh, Bubs makes the best collagen. It mixes better than any other product I've tried. Their MCT goes into my iced coffee every morning and mixes really well. It makes it creamy, full of healthy fats for if I'm not going to have a big breakfast. I just kind of want to get going, but obviously still need my coffee. Uh, And also, this company gives a full 10% of their earnings to a charity that supports military veterans, which is an important cause um, and one that I support and will continue to support. So they're a company focused on giving back first before making money, which I think is actually pretty rare uh, in this day and age, and they just happen to make great products. So it's a win, win, win all around. Go to bubsnaturals.com and use the code MM20, which stands for Muscle Maven 20% off. So MM20 at bubsnaturals.com. Go get some collagen for your gut health and your beauty. Get some MCT to support those low carb goals and do something to help the world all at the same time. All right, that's it. Back to the show. Right. That's really interesting. Okay. Um, Speaking more about timing, kind of another thing that I sort of expected when I was, you know, doing the little check, check my uh, uh, glucose sort of numbers multiple times a day, because of course I was totally doing that for the two (laughs) weeks that I had this thing on. Um, I kind of expected like, all right, I eat these carbs. It's going to spike immediately. Um, But normally this takes longer. It takes anywhere from like a half an hour to an hour. And then I was also paying attention and asking you about when it dropped back down, the ideal timing, what's healthy, what's not healthy, what's happening if it takes a really long time to come back down, or if it kind of comes down super gradually versus plummeting back down, like what those numbers and what that timing means. So can you walk us through a little bit why it takes this amount of time to see the spike and then maybe what the ideal time of that curve looks like. Yeah. So the spike can be delayed sometimes, especially if we're eating like a mixed macro meal where, you know, you have something like fat and protein that's slowing down that digestion, digestion a little bit. So if that's slowed down, you, your body might not be getting to the carbohydrates and the glucose and processing that for, you know, 30 minutes to an hour. So on in general, like the higher the fat content with carbohydrates, the more delayed we'll see that response. And then also with portion sizes. So the bigger the portion size, we tend to see a more delayed glucose response. Um, what we're looking for in general, though, beyond just that maximum glucose value we talked about is the shape of that postprandial curve. So in general, we want a smaller area under the curve and there's metrics, you know, on our app that help to monitor this and, you know, sort your meals by your area under the curve. But that spike that goes up and then comes back down fairly quickly is more desirable than a really long, prolonged glucose response that lasts maybe four or five hours because that postprandial response is also giving us a good proxy for what's happening um, with your insulin levels in a postprandial state. So if you're having that long, slow glucose response, that's telling us that you're most likely having a prolonged insulin response as well, because the body's still processing that food and it's requiring more insulin over time to help bring that those levels back down to normal, which, you know, too much prolonged insulin exposure, and it can make it harder to reach your, your weight goals, body composition goals, and also can make you more susceptible to things like insulin resistance. Okay. That made me feel better because I was like, I, I felt like I had like all of these factors working against me for that short period of time that I had it on. I was like, I was like wrong time of the month super stressful, not particularly even eating that well. So like my numbers were a lot higher than I wanted, but I was having, as you kind of pointed out, my, my time kind of to come back down was in the ideal range. Right. So it showed that even if this wasn't maybe the healthiest two weeks of my life, that my body was reacting in a way that, that meant it was kind of working properly. Right. Right. It definitely shows us that, um, 
you have good insulin sensitivity. If maybe, yeah, you're eating something that gives you a glucose spike or something that's not the best option. But if we respond fairly quickly to that and your body's able to self-regulate and get back down into normal values pretty fast, that's a good sign that we're insulin sensitive and our systems are working essentially. Um, so if to a common food, um, you know, maybe a sandwich or a piece of cake, if we have a glucose response that lasts five hours, it's a little bit of a red flag that maybe your body is having a hard time processing something that really shouldn't be that, that hard to process. Got it. Okay. So now a question for the sort of keto low carb listeners, um, cause there's quite a few of them. And I know people who, who are interested in these numbers because they are, are sort of in a place where they are trying to minimize, um, glucose spikes, where they're trying to not transition to a place where they really don't rely on carbs ever for any reason. And, um, we can discuss whether that's a good idea or not until we're blue in the face, but really it's just up to sort of individual preference at that point. Um, but the question was, can your blood glucose be too low? What is it? What does that look like? Um, because it's, it's interesting because you sort of said earlier, like some people are trying to chase this sort of flat line and they don't want to have any kind of peaks and valleys when that is sort of inevitable. And it is also healthy because it's not just food that's going to, as we've, we've, talked about. It's not just food that's going to spike these things. There's stress, there's different exercise, there's all kinds of things. So generally speaking, for maybe a keto person who is doing it for fat loss, who's doing it to maybe um, improve metabolic function and all of these things, is there sort of um, a level of either flatness or low blood glucose that's going to be problematic? Like they should be watching out and kind of looking at this and saying, this is too low or this is too low for too long, or there aren't enough kind of spikes. And yeah, kind of talk to us about that. Yeah. And, and the most important thing that we want to monitor with low glucose values is if you're having symptoms. Um, so symptoms of hypoglycemia would be things like sweating, dizziness, nausea, shaking. Um, in general, true hypoglycemia is very rare in non-diabetics. And there's two different types. Um, there's reactive hypoglycemia, which is more common. And this is not seen in ketogenic people. This is like, you know, if you have for a fine carbohydrate and your glucose spikes, and then it plummets afterwards and you get that like brain fog energy crash. And this is fairly common. Um, and that might be a sign again, that your body's not self-regulating that well. And we have to really work on cutting back carbohydrates. Um, and then there's also fasting hypoglycemia. And we see this sometimes with people while they're sleeping. Um, and so if, if you're wearing a CGM and you notice a glucose dip while you're sleeping and it wakes you up, that might be true fasting hypoglycemia. And that would be values below 55. So while 70 to 90 is sort of the ideal glucose range for fasting glucose values, um, there's really not compelling evidence that we should be concerned unless glucose is going below 55, or even if it's like at 70, 75 and you're having symptoms. Um, so essentially those symptoms are in place to send a signal to your brain that you need to eat, that something's wrong. And so if you're having symptoms of hypoglycemia at a blood glucose of 70 or 65, then that means your brain is not getting enough glucose and something's wrong. Um, but if your glucose is resting at 60, maybe you're doing a prolonged fast, or you're just in a higher level of ketosis, then that's not necessarily a problem unless you're having symptoms. If that answers okay. your question. No, that's helpful. That's good. And I think it's also just a good reminder for people that the CGM is, can tell you some really interesting things that you maybe didn't know. And it's giving you information that you don't really have access to, but that it's also important to always check in with how you actually feel as well. Right. It's not just like this number is good. This number is bad across the board. It's like, okay, well compare this and, and use this information, but also like pay attention to what your body's doing and what your, your body's telling you to, um, Totally. Can, can, yeah. something, something interesting too, that many people have told us is that they start to recognize a certain threshold in their glucose values where they start to feel not as good. And they didn't, you know, recognize this connection until you're measuring the data. And so while we say 140 is sort of an upper threshold, I have many people have told me once I hit 120, I don't feel very good, you know, whatever X, Y, Z symptom that is. And while there's no research out there to say, you know, some people 120 is optimal. 
that's very valid that, you know, I've started to recognize this is actually my threshold for just optimal subjective experience. And, and that's something interesting and worth noting as well is definitely correlate how you feel at different values. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that's important. Um, but I, I also think that I guess it's, it is important to kind of track these things too, because a lot of times people, may not know what they're supposed to feel like. They may not know what is ideal versus normal or not normal. Um, and one of the reasons why I, I bring this up is because, and again, maybe the two week period that I used wasn't the ideal two week period. But one thing that I kind of noticed that we can maybe talk about a little bit is when I was having spikes. So when I was eating the plantain chips or I went out to dinner maybe one day and I ate like bread and stuff, whatever. And I was spiking to about as high as I spiked, which was maybe like in the high 140s for uh, half an hour, an hour, something like that. I didn't necessarily feel bad. I didn't necessarily notice anything. Like I knew mentally, okay, I just ate some food that was high carb or it wasn't maybe super good for me, but I didn't have symptoms like jitteriness or energy crashes or, or anything that I would maybe expect with sort of like too high glucose values. So I guess we could say it's like, look, it's because you're pretty healthy. You don't do it all the time. And it, it you know, your, your body was managing it properly, but maybe this kind of brings out a bigger conversation about is it good to know these things if it isn't going to change your behavior, if it isn't really negatively affecting you? Is this going to maybe make me more paranoid in the future when I don't need to be? Or is it giving me valuable information that my body wasn't telling me? Like, I don't really know where to go with that information, right? Because, you know, I was looking at it, it was kind of freaking me out. I'm like, oh, geez, this number's pretty high. And I didn't really feel any different. I didn't feel bad. So like, what, what does that mean, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I don't and and the highest my glucose has ever gone is maybe like 160. And I don't necessarily feel any different at that either. Where I really notice is when like my overnight glucose values are higher. I don't sleep as well. I feel kind of foggy in the morning, but I don't inherently feel different when I have, you know, a certain threshold glucose spike that's good versus, you know, suboptimal. Um, and so I'm in that same, you know, camp as you where other people tell me that they truly feel a different at certain thresholds. Um, and maybe that creates more stress than necessary for some people, which is not the, the point, you know, that's not the goal. Stress also raises our glucose values and it also increases our risk factor for just about every, you know, disease and condition you can think of. So we don't want to add more stress in any situation. Um, but for me, you know, I didn't know that certain types of foods are, are giving me higher glucose values than others because everyone has these very personalized, unique responses to food. Like everyone's probably going to spike to soda, but you know, you and I are going to respond differently to sweet potatoes. We're going to respond differently to bananas, you know, all these different whole food carbohydrates, we're not going to respond the same to. And that's where I really find that information valuable and, um, I guess motivating in the future, even when I'm not wearing a CGM is I know which foods I can eat on a daily basis because I respond really well to, and then which foods, even though they're whole foods, you know, they have certain nutrient density to them, but I just respond higher for whatever, you know, genetic epigenetic reason. I know now that that's maybe something I want only after a workout or only on, you know, more special occasions. And so I can plan my diet that's more personalized to my body because I have this information, even though I wasn't necessarily feeling different at these, these varying responses. So that's how I found it very empowering is like, I know, I know these more personalized responses rather than like just following whatever, you know, somebody told me was a superfood or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I can instead know what's happening. And I suppose it's also helpful too, because like you said, if you, you know that your body's reacting perhaps suboptimally to something, even if you don't feel it, like you're saying, these are kind of like micro, uh, not traumas, but you know, like little kind of micro mm -hmm. issues that over time are going to cause a problem. So for example, for me, I keep going back to my beloved plantain chips, but because I'm, you know, relatively young and I'm active and I'm pretty metabolically healthy right now, it's spiking. It's not really causing a, a major issue, but maybe if I'm eating plantain chips a couple times a week for the rest of my life, that's going to be one that's a bit more problematic. And it's just sort of arming yourself with the knowledge, I suppose, that makes sense. 
Yeah, exactly. And like, there are certain things where, um, like on a weekly, you know, almost daily basis, I was eating, eating certain foods like, um, quinoa on my salads versus rice, because I thought quinoa was better. And then I realized I actually have a much higher glucose response to quinoa than even white rice, not even brown rice. And so now I'm like, well, I don't even like quinoa more than the other. I was just doing it because I thought it was supposed to be, you know, better. And so I can make these easy swaps. Um, to be better armed. And then, you know, if I have it at a restaurant or something, I'm not going to care because I know it's men rare and yeah. it's not a big deal. Cool. Okay. Let's talk about what your blood glucose is supposed to be doing while you sleep and why that's happening. One thing I noticed was that my, um, values were going up sort of closer to the time that I was waking up, which seems to correlate with like an increase in cortisol, which happens first thing in the morning, which I think is normal. But, but what I did notice like kind of minor fluctuations, like I didn't have any spikes or crazy drops during the night, but it wasn't flat. Again, it was kind of like doing this a little bit. So can you talk about what's going on when we're sleeping? Yeah. Minor fluctuations are definitely normal. So I would say, you know, up and down like about 10 points. So if you're going like you know, 80 to 90 or 90 to hundred throughout the night, that's fairly common. You know, while we're fasted, while we're sleeping, our liver is helping to regulate our glucose values. So it's a constant um, balance between counter-regulatory hormones to bring up our glucose a little bit so we don't get low and then bring it back down if it's getting too high. And so a little bit of fluctuation is completely normal. And then most people do experience a little bit of a glucose bump, usually between four to 8 AM, um, depending on what time you normally wake up, what your circadian rhythm is like. And this is due to just, you know, like our wake up hormones. So cortisol is stimulated, glucose is released a little bit, and it should come back down to normal within a couple hours. So many people like, you know, overnight values, let's say they're resting between 90 and hundred, and then maybe it peaks to like 110 at like 6 AM. And then it usually goes down to its lowest values an hour or two after waking as we balance that peak from the early morning hormones. And so you might drop down to like 70 or 80, um, in that morning when you're fasted and that's completely normal. Um, some patterns we see overnight that are abnormal is, you know, a gradual rise in your glucose values while you're sleeping, or, you know, maybe you started high and it takes a while to get down to that hundred range. And maybe you're not hitting it until you're actually awake. Um, and this is fairly common and there are many different reasons that fasting glucose can be elevated, but the most common are definitely a, a late night meal the, the night before. So in general, just like, you know, all of our hormones work on a circadian rhythm, insulin and insulin sensitivity also works on a circadian rhythm. And this is something that's just been kind of a universal truth for all of our clients is that we tend to have these higher glucose responses to a food that's eaten later at night versus if that meal was eating eaten during the day. Um, so we're just less insulin sensitive in the evening. So if you have a late night meal or a really large meal in the evening, we're probably going to see higher overnight values while you're sleeping. And this might impair your ability to get into a deep sleep. And so that's something I've really noticed is if I go into the night with these higher glucose values, I'm not going to sleep as well. And this is pretty common across the board. Um, the others, yeah, stress. So stress is the big one that can raise those overnight values because when we're in that fasted state, you know, the liver is really taken over and, and controlling our glucose values. And when we have elevated cortisol, because we're stressed or, you know, not sleeping well, whatever is going on, then that's signaling to your liver to release more glucose. So it's saying, make more glucose. We need energy. We're under stress. And unfortunately, you know, we don't usually actually need that extra energy. Um, and so it ends up kind of stuck in circulation. And so if you have higher overnight values or higher values, when you're waking up, the, those are the biggest culprits to first look at. Cool. Okay. Uh, one more big topic, cause we we've touched on it a couple times here is how stress affects your insulin sensitivity. And mm -hmm. I want to talk about this because stress is absolutely present in all of our lives. And of course there is the conversation about good stress and bad stress because stress is good to a certain extent. And it seems like as with everything, the poison is in the dose kind of, and also the difference between acute stressors, like doing a, a hit workout and chronic stress basically just being constantly always low level stressed, which isn't ideal. Um, and I know that a lot of people who are doing things like 
long-term strict ketogenic diets, longer fasting, which that the latter being a stressor absolutely on our body, which can be beneficial in some cases and maybe not in other cases, right? And when you are doing things that you think are are healthy or you believe are going to have a, a healthy sort of end goal, but they are causing stress to you that you maybe aren't even really perceiving, that can be undoing any of the good that that practice is is potentially going to have for you, right? So talk a little bit about how um, stress affects insulin sensitivity or, 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 you know, glucose sensitivity, but also maybe like the nuance between when it's like good to have stress through workouts and, and fasting and, and, you know, sitting in a sauna, um, and how, how that kind of chronic stress can work against your health goals. Yeah. So stress definitely works on a U-shaped curve where there is some, you know, positive stress, but we can quickly rise up into that negative effect from stress when we accumulate too many stressors at once. So our body is definitely designed to handle acute stress, whether that's coming from, you know, an acute psychological stress, like a traffic jam or a fight or work stress. If it's an acute situation, we have mechanisms in place to take care of this. Um, so it's, it's really not that big of a deal. And typically you will see a glucose spike if you're in a really, you know, strong moment of acute stress. And what's happening is, you know, that stress is stimulating hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. And then that is sending signals to the liver, like we talked about, to make new more glucose and also break down those glycogen stores. So we have glucose circulating in our bloodstream. And it also reduces our insulin levels and insulin sensitivity. Cause essentially it's saying we want glucose present and we don't want insulin to reduce those glucose levels because we need the energy available to deal with the stressor. Um, so this is great if you're actually in a moment of acute stress and you need a little bit of extra energy to get through it. Like historically, if we were getting chased by something or, you know, we're, we're doing something, we're trying to kill prey for dinner. We want a little bit of extra energy to deal with this. And unfortunately, what our body is not built to be doing is to be under chronic stress. We really don't have mechanisms in place to deal with this. And so this is constant signals to the liver to elevate glucose values, constant decreasing of insulin and insulin sensitivity, which just equals higher glucose values overall and a suppressed immune system, making us more susceptible to getting sick and getting run down. And so this chronic stress, this accumulation of stress can be of course, from psychological reasons, but it can also be if we're tipping that balance of too much positive stress. So stressors are fasting, like you said, caloric restriction, um, even carbohydrate restriction to some extreme can be a stressor exercise sauna. Like you're talking about, you know, all of these are stressors. And so if we are doing too many of them, what people will typically see is, is this rise in glucose values. But if you have a low insulin level, um, then it's most likely that that's being driven by cortisol and stress. And so something actually very interesting we've noticed as well is that when women in particular who fall into this category of they're lean, they're working out, you know, they're doing all the right things. They're doing this with good intention because they want to be doing all of these healthy behaviors. They will do extended fasts, you know, anything beyond 24 hours. And we'll start to see a rise in their glucose values as they're fasting. And this is a clear signal to me that maybe your body's under too much stress. You know, you're putting it an extra layer of stress by doing this longer fast and you're already lower fat reserves, lower body fat percentage, you know, still working out, still doing all your other stressors. And the body is responding by pumping up more glucose because it thinks it's under attack where we don't really see this response very often, if at all in men where their stress tolerance, their U-shaped curve is maybe a totally, you know, different bucket of allowed stress. So they might be lean, working out, doing all the things, and they do an extended fast and their glucose values stay in that, you know, 70 to 90 range where we don't see that so much with women who are under too much stress. 
and women maybe tend to be more susceptible to psychological stresses too, which is just, you know, adds on there. And we don't want that to accumulate too much as well, which it's easier said than done. Definitely acknowledge that. Um, but it's something we have to be aware of. And sometimes seeing that data, you know, that my glucose is clearly rising when I'm under stress. A lot of people will see that their average glucose values were lower on the weekends when they're not working, they're not under as much stress, and then it'll go back up on the weekdays. And the only thing that's different is stress levels. So that's a very clear signal that, you know, maybe we don't have it as under control as we thought we did. Cause again, it's hard to know what feels like too much stress and what feels like a lot of stress if it's our constant. So a lot of people will be like, no, I'm not stressed. I'm fine. I don't think that's why my glucose is rising. Mm -hmm. And we have to probe a little bit deeper and ask, you know, what is your daily routine? Like, are you getting outside at all? You know, what is your bedtime routine? Like, um, are you doing any type of self-care? So sometimes it requires a little probing because it's difficult to identify what is so normal to you. And it can be tough too, when a lot of people consider the things that they do that are self-care are also the things that are stressors, right? Like I remember when I was, you know, doing my bodybuilding days and, and prepping and all that kind of stuff. And I'd be working out so much and I went and kind of had my blood work done and all this stuff. And I'm like, look, I'm really not that stressed. This is like my only thing that I do. I just kind of work out and eat. And that's, that's all I care about. And like, you realize that working out all the time is a stressor. It's the thing that you like to do. That doesn't mean that it's not a stressor. And I think one of the things that we all collectively as a society need to hear and really understand, and especially women, but everybody, is that more is not better in every case, right? So if intermittent fasting is good, if if lowering your carb intake is good, if working out is good, that doesn't mean that doing all of those things the most forever is going to be best, you know? And I think that that's another reason maybe why why uh, a CGM for healthy non-diabetic individuals can be helpful because it can really show you the facts, right? Like I can tell one of my hard charging, uh, hard working, lean women friends, like you're doing too much. And they're like, no, no, I'm fine. But then when you actually get that information that's showing the thing you're doing that you think is helping you is actually problematic and here is irre irrefutable proof, right? I think that can be really uh, helpful and important. Um, what do you, what can you tell us about insulin sensitivity and aging? So how does this, how do these responses change or evolve um, from a 20 year old who can get away with anything to, you know, you're entering your thirties, forties, fifties, um, and beyond, how does that change or does it have to change even? Yeah, um, it definitely changes. So we can do some things to help compensate for that, but it is one of those sort of inevitable factors that aging is going to just decrease our insulin sensitivity on average. Um, so this is seen, you know, this is very well documented at this point. And age is also an independent risk factor for things like insulin resistance and, you know, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And there are many factors at play here. Some is just that you know, our insulin levels tend to decrease over time, but also our muscle mass tends to decrease over time and our metabolic rate tends to decrease over time. And so again, strength training, I think is one of those things that can help compensate a little bit for this, this effect is making sure that you're still active and you still have good muscle mass. Um, we have higher breakdown of our muscle stores as well as we age. So being careful about that and monitoring how much lean muscle mass you have. Um, and then also with women, you know, hormonal changes that happen with age also have an effect on our glucose values. So, um, Menopause is a tough time for many women, especially in maintaining good glucose control. Um, just like with our menstrual cycle, anytime we see large fluctuations in hormones, it's going to have a downstream effect on our metabolism and our glucose control and our insulin sensitivity. And so during and after menopause, women tend to be much less carbohydrate sensitive and tend to do better with a lower carbohydrate. That doesn't mean zero. That doesn't have to mean keto, just lower carbohydrate intake, especially after menopause. 
Awesome. Okay. Um, this has been so helpful. Thank you so much. Like you, you are so knowledgeable and you're also really good at kind of breaking it down for people who maybe aren't as like technically savvy on this stuff. So this has been very, very helpful. Um, and your company, you guys are going to provide like maybe a, a little link and a special offer for my listeners. If they want to give the, this a shot, um, just before you go talk a little bit about, because I, I did the two week, like sort of the minimum two week plan. And again, if I had it for longer, there were definitely other experiments I would have tried and maybe we'll kind of do this um, in the future. But would you recommend, I mean, certainly two weeks is the minimum amount of time that you keep it on, right? But um, what would you recommend for people who are listening, who are like, I want to give this a shot for fun. I want to do some experiments, you know, whether you're keto or not, or whatever you're kind of going through, what would you recommend people um, do in terms of the length of time? And then maybe some kind of baseline experiments that people could, could do um, and how long you'd want to do them for to kind of get valuable information out of it. Yeah. So we offer two different options. One is just the one sensor last 14 days, like you said, and there's no recurring fees, you know, no commitment attached to that. And that's really good. If first you want to try it first, just to see before you commit, um, if you're, you know, a little bit commitment phobic, or if you have a pretty dialed in routine and you just want to check a few things, like maybe you just want to see if what you're doing right now is working, or if there's a few foods that you like to consume on a regular basis that you're curious about. Um, two weeks is not a ton of time to do a lot of experiments and exploration, but it's good to get a snapshot of what's going on right now. Um, whereas we also have monthly programs where you get two CGMs a month and we have different time commitments depending on where you're at. And this is really great if you have specific goals in mind, like maybe you're transitioning from something like keto to a more mixed carbohydrate diet, or maybe you really want to focus on weight loss or prediabetes and you want to get those glucose values down. That takes some time. Or if you're really not sure what you should be eating and you want to experiment with different diets, like maybe you want to try different things for two week periods. It takes a little bit of time to really see what's working best. We have a lot of people who are healthy, but they're just trying to figure out what works best for them. Um, so if you're just doing the two weeks, I think it's a good time to, you know, first eat your normal diet, your normal routine and see what that looks like with the data. And then also test a few of your favorite foods. So maybe like for me, that was, I'm going to try the salad I have every day for lunch with quinoa and then the same portion size of rice the next day. And maybe the next day, no carbohydrate in it and see how that differs. So you can do a few experiments with your favorite foods to see how you respond, you know, uniquely to these, these different foods. And then also double check things like, you know, sleep stress, is that out of control? And then if you identify maybe a problem area, like maybe sleep is your Achilles heel and you really need to work on it. You might want to stay on for a little bit longer to try different things to see what is working and what's not. Awesome. All right, Kara, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for winning me over and letting me try this, <laughs> even though I was uh, a resistant to it at the beginning. I definitely, I learned some things and I think I also just kind of had a better understanding of why this kind of testing is important, right? Um, so I appreciate it. And maybe, you know, in the new year, once the, the Christmas food mistakes are done and the <laughs> hanging out with family stress is over, uh, <laughs> I'll try a, a different experiment and I can get you to come back on and we can chat about it more. But um, this was really helpful. So thank you for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Kara for coming on and explaining a bunch of stuff to me. I learned a lot in this episode, um, including just, you know, the fact that just because you don't need something doesn't mean you can't learn from it. Um, and that there is always something else you can learn about your health and your body and how it works. Um, so I'm grateful uh, for that. And a reminder, of course, that if you do want to try the NutriSense CGM um, yourself, you absolutely can. I have a discount code for you. You will save $25, um, which is pretty good. So uh, if you want to do that, um, head to the uh, show notes for this episode and all of the information is there. Um, 
the discount code, I'm trying to find it for you, is Muscle Maven, of course, for $25 off um, at NutriSense. And thank you again to our show sponsors, Bubs. You can use the code MM20, as in Muscle Maven 20, for 20% off Bubs. Uh, my favorite collagen, my favorite MCT. They have a brand new product, which is really, really cool. Uh, highly recommend you go check it out. And as always, I really, really do welcome your feedback. If there is anything that you want me to talk about on the podcast that I haven't, uh, if there's a guest you want me to get on, just let me know. My email address, my actual personal email address is in the show notes. Um, you can reach out to me on Instagram at the Muscle Maven. Just let me know what you want to hear, and uh, I'll do my best to make it happen for you. Um, and if you are enjoying the podcast, as always, the best thing you can do for me is to subscribe, to download these episodes, to share them with people that you love, um, and leave a rating and review if you are able to do that. So that's it. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you, as always, for being a part of the podcast, and I'll see you here next week.